Jewish audio on Kaban.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchas Maaser, the laws of tithing, Pedic Achad Osar, chapter 11. This is not to be confused with the bankruptcy chapter 11. This is the tithing chapter 11. Aleph 1, continuing in the laws of tithing, produce that was in the hands of an unlearned person. And we're not sure if this unlearned person tithed it or not. And we're really concerned with the trumas miser in it, with the 100th, that is truma food, which has a life and death punishment. So we said that the scholar should retie the just in case. And this is called demai. Aleph 1, also limkers had demai This demai produce, which came from an unlearned man, from an unlearned person, we're not sure whether he tied it or not. It is forbidden to sell this demai to an ignorant person, or to send him this demai. Why? What do I care? The guy is unlearned. Because whether someone is learned or not, they're not allowed to eat something forbidden. And being that we're not certain whether this has been tithed, whether a person is learned or not, forbidden is forbidden. And when we contribute to their transgression, we are committing a transgression. So therefore, we, can, we should never say, oh, I'm just going to send this to my produce to an ignorant person. It doesn't work that way. Abel, however, on the other hand, we can sell, so we can send it to scholars. Why? Because a scholar will always be meticulous and do research and say to himself, what is this? Because we know that a chover, a scholar, will never eat until he tithes properly. Or until a trustworthy person will testify and say, hey, this is good produce, tithes have been taken. I want to point out, by the way, for those who may not have studied with us earlier, or may have missed it or forgotten it, that in the demise situation, our sages ordained that we only need to remove one one-hundredth for the truma part, the tenth of the tenth. We don't have to remove the 10% for the Levite. We don't have to remove the 10% for the poor. Why? Because they might have already gotten theirs. And when it comes to financial matters, which is what the Levite's gift and the poor man's gift is, it's not holy. It's a financial obligation. The principle is, You think I owe it to you? Prove it that this was never tithed. So therefore, the correction we talk about is twofold. Number one, the scholar must take one one-hundredth and either give it to the Kohen or set it aside. Number two, he has to set aside Meiser Shani, the second tithe, which is simply done by transferring it to money, which he will use for himself the next time he goes to Jerusalem. Again, no financial loss. So I wanted to point out that that which the scholar has to do is much more limited in the Demai situation. Okay. 
Now we say in two, an interesting scenario. All those who add to the measure when they sell in large quality or quantities, <clears throat> like wholesalers and grain merchants. I believe the scenario is as follows. We're talking about a wholesaler who is selling in very large quantities. And then he sends a gift, a bonus, to the client to say thank you for being such a good customer. They can sell this uncertain produce. They can gift this uncertain produce. Why? Because the people will know that being that you're dealing with such large quantities and the wholesaler is being generous this generosity will enable the purchaser to tithe because the purchaser received abundance so it's affordable so our sages ordained here that the buyer or the recipient of the gift should set aside the tithe because it was sent with abundance. So he has enough room there. However, those who measure very limited small measures, there's no room there in business for the extra money. In this case, because the or mistaka, because the seller is making the money, he's not that abundant, whom he sets aside. And the seller should only sell produce that's already been tithed. So here the difference is, in the first case, in the massive wholesaler, the profit is so little, the buyer benefits. It's like, for example, in our world. Somebody goes to a massive uh, wholesaler, like a Costco situation. Somebody buys in great qual- quantity. The profit margin in a Costco setting is tiny. So because the buyer has so much room there with his abundant purchase, he, uh, purchase, he can tithe. But in the case of the regular retailer, there's no real room there. So in that case, there's more profit for the seller and, and, and less for the buyer. In that case, the seller should tithe. That's what he says in paragraph 2. Wholesalers can sell demai and can gift demai. Retailers shouldn't. Now he says, How much is abundant? How much is a lot? When you're talking about dry measure, talking about moist measure, something that's worth a dinner of that moist measure. What about a person who sells baskets of olives or grapes or containers of vegetables, not by weight, but by the basket, so that seems to be generous. Even though he's selling it by estimation, it does not give him the same leeway as the wholesaler had. He has to give, the scholar has to set aside the tithe. 
Hey, Omar Echad Mehen. What if one of them said, Let's correct this. Let's make this good. Whether it's the retailer or the wholesaler. The system is that the 1% is set aside by the seller. That goes for the truma. But the buyer always sets aside the second tithe. And again, we talked about this extensively earlier. Because the second tithe is not a financial loss for an end user. Because he just takes this money and uses it in Jerusalem when he goes to Jerusalem. When we go to Jerusalem, which Jews did three times a year or, or, or once a year or once in three years, whatever the situation was, depending upon the different times, they still needed money. So there's no financial loss. For the wholesaler, this would be a tremendous financial loss if 10% of his gross sales would have to be set aside. This ordinance that the 1% of truma, the seller should set aside, the 10% of the second tithe, the buyer should set aside, this is a condition ordained by the courts. What if there were two brothers or two relatives, a scholar and a non-scholar, who inherited the estate of their father who was a non-scholar? So now the scholar has to make sure that he does it right, and the non-scholar doesn't know or doesn't care. The scholar can say to his brother, his unlearned brother, I'll tell you what, you take the wheat in this and this place, and I'll take the wheat in the other place. That's fine. You take the wine in one place, and I'll take the wine in another place. That's fine. In that case, it's okay because he only deals with his wheat or his wine, and the other wheat or the other wine is not his business. What he should not say is, You take wheat and I'll take wine. You take the liquid and I'll take the dry produce. Because this trade is tantamount to selling untithed produce. And this would not be kosher. And here we talk about repeatedly, and I have not mentioned this every time, the idea of Breira. Breira is a rabbinic system where we say that that which was chosen at the end is considered to have been chosen in the beginning. That which fate will bring about in the end is what was meant to happen in the beginning. Here we do not apply this because it's two different types of produce. So the Breira is not applied here. Seven, interesting scenario. Somebody is carrying a load of vegetables. He's schlepping it. He can't take it anymore. It's too heavy. So he wants to remove some. Simply, simply to lighten his load because he can't carry that load anymore. So what's the problem? You're allowed to put something down in a public domain and say, come and get it. It's called hefker. It's called making something public. Ownerless. The problem is that here, 
you're going to be putting down a produce from which tithes has not been taken. So the guy is going to come walking along, not going to know that, and you're going to cause him to stumble and eat untithed produce. He should not cast it away until he at least takes off that one hundredth of tithes. In order that he not create a stumbling block, who will eat it in a state of perhaps untithed. And the question here is asked, how is this different than anybody who declares his produce ownerless? Why, in those laws, we say it's not a problem. In fact, Produce that is declared ownerless does not require tithe. The answer is, once the tithing obligation kicks in, you're not allowed to declare it ownerless before you tithe. And here, in the case of this guy carrying it, the tithing obligation kicked in already. What if somebody goes to the fair, to the farmer's market? He buys vegetables... And then he actually takes possession of it. He pulls it towards him, which is the Torah way, the, the, the legal way in Jewish law of acquiring. In Jewish law, paying for something is not as important as pulling it and taking it into your possession. Even though he didn't weigh, he didn't measure, he didn't pay, but he acquired it. It's his. Now this guy is a scholar. He brought produce. He bought produce. So he's responsible now to make sure that this produce is tithed. Now he says, ah, I don't like my purchase. I have my receipt. I'm going to customer service. I'm going to return it. He can't return it until he tithes it. Because a scholar never allows something out of his hand until it's tithed. What if somebody finds produce along the road and he doesn't know if this produce requires tithing or not? Now, we learned earlier that there are many things that have to happen to produce in order to have the obligation of tithing to kick in. One of them is that the owner has to bring the produce into his home, into his domain. Just it's sitting out in the field is not enough. So now, the produce that we find in the street, we have no idea whether this was ever brought into the owner's home or not. Into his domain or not. If the vast majority of people in that community ordinarily, systematically bring produce into their homes, then, then, being that he found this out in the street, He's not obligated to give tithe, since the obligation to tithe will take effect when the person brings it home. Uh-huh. Since the okay, since most people in that community bring it into the house, we can assume that the person brought it home. We can assume that he tithed it. And therefore, the person does not have to tithe it again. And then there are commentaries who question this. The problem is it may belong to an ignorant person. So they have other interpretations. Shadayin le'nikbo because it has not been 
established for tithing, that's a different approach. It has not been brought into the house. So my understanding here is that if somebody finds produce along the way, and most people bring the produce into their house, this produce was not yet brought into the house. Therefore, he doesn't have to tithe it. But if most of the people bring it into their house with the intention of selling it, then this would take on the categorization of demai, what if half the people do and half the people don't, then it's a case of demai. What if he took it to eat it? And he decided to store it. He shouldn't store it until he tithes it. Because we don't want anyone ever to stumble upon it and eat it untied. But if he took it to begin with just to store it, then he can keep it until he decides to eat it, to sell it, or to send it, and then he will do the maestro. Yudal, if we learned parallel laws to this earlier, trimmed vegetables, already trimmed vegetables, trimmings of vegetables that are found in the garden. Why, why were the trimmings found in the garden? Because they're trimmings. Because whoever took the vegetables from the garden, decided that these are not important pieces. So they left them for garbage. However, as we all know, even garbage is edible. So this is exempt from demai, because it was left. We assume that the gardener will trim, or the harvester will trim very close. But if it was found in the house... Chayevus, then it's obligated because the homemaker does not trim that close and when cooks prepare vegetables, there's a lot of good pieces left in the trimmings. Shalgabi Ashba, but if you found it in the garbage dump, the Chomokamuteris, it's always permissible to eat because there's no really good stuff left. And the garbage, it's considered garbage and that's an interesting law. Yud base. Hanei sein lepundekois lebasholei. If somebody gives his innkeeper, people used to get, go to a bed and breakfast, an inn, and part of the innkeeper's wife's task was she had to cook for the guests as well. Or she could be asked to cook for the guests. So somebody who gave the innkeeper's wife some produce, and requested of her, please cook this for me, the lapis lawyer, bake it for me. He certainly must tie that which he gives her. Even though he could say, I'll tie it later, no, because somebody could see that he's a scholar and he gave it to her, and they'll take a piece and they'll stumble. He also has to take and tithe again. When he picks it up from her, why? He tied it again when he gave, he tied it already when he gave it to her. Aha! I'm glad you asked. Because she is suspected of exchanging his produce with another produce. She'll have her own produce, which is not as good. So she'll say, "What does this guy know? I'll cook the cheaper produce for him and take the more expensive." So he's now eating untied produce. Therefore, he has to tie that again. The moral of the story is, don't ask the innkeeper's wife to cook for you. Because you got double trouble. 
This is a chapter of Rambam that all the mothers-in-law love. What if somebody gives his mother-in-law some vegetables or some grains? And he says, my dear mother-in-law, can you please cook this? He's already fully married to her daughter. He's only in the first stage of marriage called betrothal. Or, similar scenario, he goes to the neighbor, you know, the neighbor from whom you borrow a cup of sugar. That neighbor, past left, and she says, do me a favor, my, 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 my uh, wood stove is a little bit uh, not working well, I'm waiting for Sears to come. Or, he gives, him something, he gives the neighbor something to cook, in the case of a mother-in-law, or in the case of a good neighbor, like a good neighbor, state farm is there. Here he doesn't have to worry about tithing, about the sabbatical year. Because the mother-in-law and the neighbor should not be, is not suspected of exchanging produce. Because there's a real relationship there. It's not some strange innkeeper's wife. When does this apply? When he also gave her yeast for the dough and spice for the cooked dish. But if he didn't, not only should we be concerned with tithing, we should also be concerned with produce of the sabbatical year. Because even though she's not suspect to exchange, we fear that she used forbidden yeast or forbidden spices. If that, if, if that, if the shoe fits, wear it. If he didn't give, we should be concerned with tithing in the sabbatical year. If it was a sabbatical year, perhaps the yeast is from produce that grew even inadvertently out of the sabbatical year. Yud Gimel, what if somebody takes his wheat to the grinder, to the processor, to the miller, to grind it, and the miller is an unlearned person? Should he be concerned that the miller is exchanging his wheat? Should he tithe twice? We can assume that the miller, being a professional, will not exchange the customer's produce. A professional milliner, or miller, miller rather, a professional miller is not suspect of exchanging the produce. What if, however, he brought it to a miller who is not of the Jewish faith, therefore, not obligated altogether in any of these commandments. Here they have to be considered doubtful. Maybe he exchanged them for somebody else's grain of an unlearned person. So also if somebody gives a package to an unlearned person to hold for him, to guard for him, we can assume that when somebody receives a package to guard, even though he's unlearned, he will not exchange the package. Because an honest person, learned or unlearned, would not be suspect to exchange somebody's private package. In an interesting scenario, it's an unlearned person who was working 
or managing a store of a learned person, even though the learned scholar is walking in and out, it's permissible because he's walking in and out. We're not concerned lest he exchange. And this is the basic principle in modern day kosher supervision. In an average situation, we're not talking about a butcher shop which needs meticulous supervision, but we're talking about a store where the mashgiach, the kosher supervisor, could be yotzevenichnas, could be coming in and going out as long as the owner never knows when he comes in and when he goes out. So here we have the situation where, I'm sorry, I, I think I interpreted this inappropriately. The ignorant person is working in the store of the learned person. So being that the learned person is always in and out, it's permissible even though the ignorant person is working there, and we're not concerned with him exchanging the produce. Fifteen. What if, however, somebody gives his produce to a non-Jewish person to hold on to, and again, this person is not obligated in the laws of tithing whatsoever and doesn't even know about the Marein Pereisov. This must be treated as if it was the produce of the non-Jew. Because he can be suspect to exchange the package. So therefore, if that is the case, what should one do? If the produce was not, has not yet come full cycle in its maturity, so the laws of tithing has not kicked in yet, have not kicked in yet. And the full cycle came. Once the Jew took this package back, then full cycle came in the domain of the Jew. He must for sure set aside the tithes, as we explained earlier. What if he gave it to the non-Jew in a state when it was not tithed, and then it came full cycle, and now he has it? Here he must set aside the tithes. Why? Because it might be his produce. And if it's his produce, he has to set aside the tithes. Because they just came to full maturity. Perhaps the non-Jew did not exchange it. Because here's an interesting situation. If he exchanged it, there's no obligation of tithes. Because produce belonging to a non-Jew does not have to be tithed. Therefore, the Rambam says, It appears to me, this is one of those expressions, that this is a law which the Rambam himself is teaching, not based on his teachers. That the tithe... That this man will now set aside Suffolk is really doubtful tithe. Because it may be the non-Jews produce that doesn't have to be tithe. So we've got to be careful. But if he took everyday produce that had been already corrected and he gave it to the non-Jew to watch, and it's we don't have to set aside anything. If he exchanged it, it's even great. And it's exempt for sure. And if he didn't exchange it, it's also exempt. Where do we have that source law? Because it says, Your grain, Your grain, and not the grain of a Gentile. So the fact is that if he gave already tithed grain to this non-Jewish person to watch, 
In any event, he's exempt. If the guy did not exchange it, it's already tithed. If the guy did exchange it, it doesn't have to be tithed. End of chapter 11.